Man. Luke chapter 12 tonight, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 12. So as I was sharing with you, we've got four weeks left in this year for Tuesday nights. We've got tonight, we've got the 4th of December, the 11th and the 18th. And then we're going to be taking a longer break than we've ever taken before. And part of it is the holidays, but part of it is scheduling conflicts with Basha. So I want to begin announcing this tonight so that you will mark this on your calendars, okay? The last Tuesday night that we will meet this year is Tuesday, December the 18th. Then obviously the next Tuesday is Christmas. The next Tuesday is New Year, so obviously we're not meeting on the 25th or the 1st. But we're also then, because of a scheduling conflict with Basha, we are also not meeting on the 8th of January or the 15th of January. So when we leave on the 18th of December, we will not be back to resume refuel until the 22nd of January. Okay? I know that's a long break. Uh, but I'm telling you this, we are going to come back on the 22nd with guns blazing. Okay? Uh, in fact, we're going to be doing some things special those first couple Tuesday nights back on the 22nd and the 29th of January just to sort of rally our people back. And uh, yeah, well, it's sort of going to be like that, yeah. Uh, it will have to do with food, that's for sure. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leverage this moment to just throw this out. This is why, again, we're not in any rush. We're going to wait on God's timing. But this is a very good opportunity for us as a church to remember why it's going to be good one day to have our own place. Because then we wouldn't have to miss two Tuesdays with the scheduling conflict with Bash. Now, I, I realize... When we have our own building, there's going to be things associated with that. I get that. That's not going to solve all of our problems. In fact, it's going to create some problems. I get that. But especially when it comes to renting from a school, when they need the space, you know, we're sort of out of luck when it comes to that. So just something to keep in mind of why we're working towards, you know, having our own place. But anyway... 18th of December will be our last refuel for this year, and we won't come back till the 22nd. And when we do come back, we will just pick it right back up in the Gospel of Luke. We are going all the way through the Gospel of Luke. With that said, Luke chapter 12 tonight, just continuing on to look at the ministry of Jesus Christ. And in Luke 12, in the first 12 verses, Jesus here is warning of hypocrisy. Uh... I want to first of all get to uh, this uh, verse 1 where he defi- where we weren't going to define hypocrisy. But let me just read actually the first uh, verse. Meanwhile, when many thousands of the crowd had gathered so that they were trampling on one another. Wow. Wouldn't that be cool instead of trampling on people to buy something at a store? That we lived in a world where people were trampling on one another to hear the word of God. Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. 
Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. First of all, I want you to notice the word yeast. The word speaks about subtle influence. And so Jesus is saying, be careful of the subtle influence of the Pharisees because, in a sense, they are hypocrites. In fact, the phrase, be on your guard there in verse 1, means to be attentive. In fact, it's also a nautical term. It was used of sailors in bringing a ship to land and not getting caught up on the rocks or... uh, on some kind of obstacle. And so he says, be careful that these religious leaders of Israel are not subtly influencing you because of their hypocrisy. What does the word hypocrisy mean? It literally means to play a part, to pretend, to be an actor on a stage, one who always has an answer. Just think of an actor playing a part. That's what hypocrisy is in the New Testament. And Jesus is saying, that's what the religious leaders of Israel were doing. They were playing games, in a sense, with God and with their faith. There wasn't anything genuine or sincere about it. And it reminds us of how God calls us to transparency and to genuineness and to sincerity in our relationship with Him. Never to a point where we get to a point, even if we're Christians, where we're just, again, going through the motions and we're just pretending and where we're just playing a part and we're going through what we know we should do, but... There's no life there. There's no heart there. There's no passion there. Jesus says, be careful of that. We see some principles here. Notice, it is, it is people-driven rather than principle-driven. That's what hypocrisy is. One of the reasons why, because notice again the context. At this point in Jesus' ministry, there are thousands of people following Him. And Jesus is trying to say, be careful Because when you and I become people-driven rather than principle-driven, we get caught up with the crowd and with people and wherever they're going, and that can be very dangerous because these same people, some of them, just a couple of weeks later, are going to be standing there crying, crucify Him. So be careful of being people-driven. We live in a world today where even amongst Christians, they sort of look at each other and say, what are you doing? I don't know, what are you doing? What do you think? Well, I don't know. What do you think? And, and people are ending up just sort of following each other rather than really, and we're going to get to this later, really having a clarity within themselves of what God they should do. They don't know what they should do. That's why they end up following people and being people-driven rather than principle-driven or God-driven. That was exactly true of the Pharisees. That's why they got to a point, notice there, where they cared more about how others viewed them instead of how God viewed them. That's why Jesus goes in and starts talking about, uh, in verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but after that have nothing more that they can do. I'll warn you whom you should fear. Fear the one who, after the killing, has authority to throw you into hell. Fear him. Care more about what God thinks than what people think. By the way, the word fear here in verse 5 means to treat with deference. 
It speaks of reverential obedience. It's not an unhealthy fear of God. It's a healthy reverence and respect for God that will defer to God, that will obey because He's God and we're not. That's the kind of fear that Jesus is encouraging here. Too many times we fear people and we fear what they're going to think and what they're going to say and what they're going to do instead of what's God think. Because sometimes they're going to be in conflict with each other. We're going to see this later on tonight as well. Notice Jesus says that hypocrisy carries with it eternal consequences. In verse 8, he says, I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men declares openly is what the word acknowledge means, to publicly proclaim or profess. The Son of Man will also be acknowledged before God's angels, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before God's angels. The word denied here means affirming no acquaintance or connection. It's exactly what Jesus said when he said there will be many in that day. He will say, well, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful works and cast out demons in your name and whatever? And Jesus says to them, I never knew you. I never had an acquaintance or relationship with you. I never had a connection with you. And so Jesus again is saying, be very careful, be attentive. Bring that ship to land. Bring your faith to land. Finish well. Don't get caught up in being people-driven and caring about others and how they view you more than how God views you. And then Jesus, at the end of this passage, talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which can be a very controversial, debated passage. I want to try to simplify it if I can When Jesus says, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven, but the person who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Again, wow, that is a heavy statement. I think simply though what Jesus is saying there is that if you question something that he says, okay, but to question the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the reason why that is so critical is because the Bible teaches that the entire ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus. Therefore, if you're rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit, in a sense, you can never come to true faith in Jesus Christ because the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit is pointing people to Jesus. That's why Jesus said He came. That's exactly what was happening whenever Jesus was casting out demons and they were attributing His miracle-working power to the power of Satan. And we talked about this last week and Jesus says, well, why would Satan cast out his own self and his own kingdom? A kingdom divided itself against itself can't stand. The reason that the Holy Spirit did the workings that he did through Jesus and through others was to testify that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament predicted. And so again, to reject or blaspheme the Holy Spirit To to affirm that the Holy Spirit who's trying to witness and point people to Jesus is actually pointing to something or someone else. There's no way a person can come to faith without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
And so to me, in this context, he's also saying that that's exactly what the hypocrites do. That's what the religious leaders of Israel did. Because throughout the Gospels, everything that Jesus did in their presence, we're going to see next week and the week after where Jesus did miracles right in front of the Pharisees, right in front of the religious leaders. And they were never changed by any of it. They weren't changed by Jesus' teaching. They weren't changed by the miracles. They weren't changed by anything because they rejected the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, well, then there's no way you can ever come to forgiveness. There's no way you can ever come to a relationship with Christ if you reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus here, in the beginning of this passage, is really saying, be careful, be careful, be careful of hypocrisy. And again, I want to go back to that word yeast. Subtle influence. (laughs) Even in our own lives, beginning to go through the routine of what we know we should be doing as Christians rather than our heart really being in it can be so subtle. That's why we've got to continually evaluate and check ourselves and make sure we're not just going through the motions. That's why I try to challenge all of us, including myself, and encourage all of us when we get together on Sundays and Tuesdays, make sure it's just not like, well, I just showed up today because it's church. Make sure that our heart is in it and that we're in it for the right reasons and we're not just pretending. And if we've gotten to that place, then we need to allow God to work on us to get us to a place where that life and that fire and that passion and doing it for the right reasons and all of that begins to come back. And it can and it will and it has in many Christians' lives. But Jesus is simply saying, be careful. Obviously, here in this context, this hypocrisy was based on people who were trying to pretend to be spiritual or portray themselves as super spiritual, and they weren't at all. But even sometimes for us, who have the Spirit of God, who are Christians, who are saved, we can also allow ourselves to get to that sort of hypocritical point where we're just going through the motions of what we know we should do without, again, any life or passion behind it. Be careful, Jesus says. Always be on guard and be attentive to that. Next, he talks to us, and this flows right into it, about real life, beginning in verse 13. Real life is about relationships. Relationship with God, relationships with each other. Notice how this starts. Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And I love Jesus' response. He said, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter between you two? Now here's the thing. First of all, could Jesus have judged that? Absolutely. Could he have been the best judge to judge that? Absolutely. But if Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, didn't get involved in that then it sort of sends us a signal that there are many things that we shouldn't get involved in either. Even if we have the answer. Because Jesus had, he would have had an answer. But he said, I'm not getting involved with that. The, the sad thing is, we obviously see, and we, we've seen it throughout history, where somebody in a family died... And where life was reduced to what I can get in an inheritance. 
and it divides family members and stuff just like it did here. And, and Jesus is trying to say real life is more about preserving relationships and relationships than it is about things. This is very... This is a very strong principle in my life for this reason. I saw this divide my own father from his brothers and sisters when I was a child. My grandmother had died. And I'll never forget, I drove with my father over to my grandmother's house. I can, I can picture it even though it was 45 years ago now. I can picture it if, it's, if it happened today. And we drove up. It was just me and my dad. My mom had stayed back home. And we pull up to my grandmother's house. And already his brothers and sisters were in there. And there literally was this huge argument going on with the three of them outside over my grandmother's things. And I'll never forget. You just had to know my dad. I looked over at my dad and he started to weep. And he just looked at his brothers and sisters and there was just this sadness that came over as he was watching his own brothers and sisters destroy relationships with each other over stuff. And he got out of the car and he basically said to his brothers and sisters, I'm sorry, but what you're doing is wrong and it's not worth this. I'm leaving. You guys can fight over all of it. I don't want any of it. Because it should be more about relationships. I've never forgotten that. I have never forgotten that day. And up until the day my dad died, he never had a healthy relationship with his brothers or sisters ever again. Real life, folks, is about relationships. At the end of the day, there's only two things when we die that we come in contact with on this side of glory that are eternal, that's going to last. I've shared this with you many times. The Word of God and people. That's it. Everything else is left behind. Everything else is temporal. It's the time that we have with other people. It's the time we invest with others and they with us that really matter. It's the time we spent in the Word of God that will last forever that really matters. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. That's why He goes on to say in verse 15, He said to them, Watch out and be on guard against all types of greed. Because real life brings contentment, fulfillment, and satisfaction. Because the word greed here means desire to have more. Covetousness. And it was a word used basically that's never satisfied. He says, be careful. Because when you and I go down that road where we think real life is about, well, if I just had this, or if I just had that, or if I just attained this, or if I just attained that, if I just got to this place, or that place, or whatever. He says, when we get to that kind of place... It always has to be the next thing, and it's never satisfied. Read the book of Ecclesiastes, read the book of Proverbs, over and over again, the Bible trumpets this principle. It's just the opposite with real life. When you and I have accepted and, and surrendered to the abundant life that Jesus brings us, then we 
come to a place of contentment, fulfillment, and satisfaction in God that nothing else or no one else or nothing can bring us. That's why even the word agape, the word for love in the Greek language, literally means to be contented with. When you and I truly love God, we are contented with God and what He has given us, and we're not looking for anything outside of what He can do or what He has done for us to somehow fulfill and satisfy us. And I realize this is a process for all of us. It's part of our spiritual growth, which is why Paul said to the Philippians, I came to a place where I learned to be content where I learned what real life really was. As I shared last week, what God is reminding me of is that the tragedy of life is not how short it is, it's how long it takes us to really begin to live it. Then Jesus talks about real life being selfless. Notice even at the end of this passage in verse 21, he says, so it is with the one who stores up riches for himself. And is not rich toward God. But the story in the context is this story he tells them of this certain rich man. Verse 16. And I want you to notice as we go down through here. How many times the word I is used. The land of a certain rich man produced an abundant crop. So he thought to himself. What should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and celebrate. I, I, I. Real life, it doesn't revolve around us. It's not about living life for ourselves. Real life involves living for the glory of God and for others. That's what real life is. And that's why then Jesus ends this passage by saying, God said to him, you fool. By the way, the word fool literally means without reflection. That's what the word fool means. Not an unintelligent person. Fools can be very intelligent. They can have high IQs, but if they're not really reflecting on life, and on what God has said, then God calls them a fool. They have not reflected enough to really think about the ramifications and consequences of their choices and their decisions and where they're going in life and how this is all going to end. Or the fact that it's going to end at all. As this man did. And God said, this very night your life will be demanded back from you, but who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So it is with the one who stores up riches for himself and is not rich toward God. What's it mean to be rich toward God? I put it in your notes. To center on eternal things, to invest in eternity, to lay up treasure in heaven, as Jesus said. That's what it means to be rich towards God. God doesn't need anything from us. As we shared on Sunday, God doesn't need anything from us. He can exist totally without anything Within himself, but being rich towards God means to invest in eternity. And this man, obviously, it was all about himself. We need to be challenged. If we're going to experience the real life that Jesus has come to give us, then we need to make it about relationships. We need to be growing in our contentment, fulfillment, and satisfaction. We need to be living a 
more selfless life, and we need to be centering our life on eternal things. Then we will experience the abundant life that Jesus has come to give us, which then again flows great into this next passage where Jesus talks about free from worry. The reason why we worry so much is again because for many of us, our focus and our priorities are on the wrong things. As I put there, worry distracts us from what's really important. Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, verse 22, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for there is more to this life than food and more to the body than clothing. More to this life. If I'm worried and anxious and troubled about these things, then that means I'm being distracted from what's really important. Every moment that I'm worrying about these things, I'm taking my focus of the more important things that we just talked about. That's why Jesus says, worry also reinforces lies rather than the truth. For he says in verse 23, again, there is more to, the bo- or more to life than food, more to the body than clothing. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Two things. When we worry, we begin to get an erroneous view of God, first of all. That's why Jesus says, God feeds the birds. God takes care of the animals. And when we worry, we forget who God is, who He's revealed Himself to be, and we stop believing and trusting and having confidence in Him being our provider. We we begin to think somehow we've got to take care of ourselves because somehow God can't or won't or isn't. And that's what worry will do. It it will mess up our view of God. Worry also messes up our view of ourselves, Because Jesus says, don't you remember? If God cares for the birds, you're more valuable than they are. And we forget when we worry just how valuable we are to God. And if God takes care of His creation and the creatures out there in the woods... Won't He take care of us who are more valuable than they are? So we mess up our view of God. We mess up our view of ourselves. We begin to devalue when we worry who we really are. We're really saying, I'm not very important. I'm not very valuable. Therefore, God won't take care of me. Just the opposite. I love too what Jesus said. Worry doesn't solve anything. In verse 25, and which of you by worrying, by being anxious, by being troubled with care, can add an hour to his life? In fact, isn't it true that by anxiety and worry, we probably take years off of our life rather than adding to it? And then Jesus says in verse 26, if you cannot do such a very little thing as this, Jesus considers it a very little thing to add an hour to your life, by the way. Because that's the way God is. It's no big deal to add an hour to somebody's life, right? But you couldn't do it. Then he talks about the flowers. He says, look, consider how the flowers grow. 
Solomon and all his glory wasn't even clothed. And if God clothes the wild grass, verse 28, which is here today and tomorrow is tossed into the fire to eat the oven, how much more will he clothe you? And then he closed that by you people of little faith. Because the other thing we learn here then is that worry damages our faith. Every time we choose to worry rather than trust in God, or as Paul tells us to do, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. If we start worrying about it rather than praying about it and taking these things to God, then every time we do that, we are damaging our faith. Because as we worry, we are beginning to create or reinforce an erroneous view of God in our minds, and we are continuing to create an erroneous view of us as we worry. And then in this last part, Jesus says, worry reveals our heart. Worry reveals our heart. He says, verse 20, don't be overly concerned about what you will eat or drink, and do not worry about such things. He says, for all the nations of the world pursue these things. Your father knows that you need them. Instead, pursue his kingdom. And all these other things will be added to you. Strive after is what the word pursue means. Aim at. That's why he says, do not be afraid, verse 32, little flock. Your father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. So he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide yourselves purses that do not wear out. A treasure in heaven that never decreases or fails. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we're worried about the mundane, trivial, temporal things of life, it really reveals the fact that our heart really is not aimed at and pursuing the kingdom of God. Because if our heart is really pursuing the kingdom of God, then we're not going to be focused on these trivial temporal things like food and clothing and all this other stuff. We're going to be so concerned about the kingdom of God and investing in eternity that we won't even have time to worry about these temporal things. So again, Jesus would say, I want you to be free from worry. Because worry keeps us from experiencing real life. Which is why I think in the context, the one flows right into the other. And then he talks to us about being faithful to the end. I love this. Verse 35. Get dressed for service. And keep your lamps burning. Be like people waiting for their master to come back from the wedding celebration so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Jesus here is talking about people being faithful to the end, about finishing strong. How to stay faithful, I put there in the notes. Jesus gives us three things. First of all, get dressed for service. The word literally means to gird oneself. It pictured, again, people in biblical times who wore the robes, who would pull up their robes and tie them so that they could be ready to serve. I love that picture back in Genesis. I think it's chapter 18 where Abraham even, the great Abraham, who had hundreds of servants, literally was sitting in the, in the division of his tent in the heat of the day watching to, to, for somebody he could serve. That, that's, that's being ready for service. That's looking to be served. The word also here, the words mean also to equip oneself. 
So as a pastor, if it's my job, according to Paul, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, it's your responsibility as the saints to be equipped, to get equipped, to have the necessary tools that you need to serve when God shows us the opportunity. Then the next thing is keep your lamps burning. The words literally mean to be set on fire to burn. God wants us to have a holy fire, to always be burning for him, to always be on fire for God. That's how we can be faithful to the end, to keep that spiritual passion in our lives. And then he says to be like people waiting. Though I love this word waiting here in verse 36. It means to expect the fulfillment of promises. See, the reason we live in expectancy is hopefully because we believe the promises of God. When God says, I'm coming back someday and I want you to live every day as if I could come today, that we truly live expecting God to fulfill His promises. And that's how you and I can stay faithful to the end. By allowing ourselves to be equipped, to always gird ourselves and be ready for service, ready when God taps us on the shoulder and and leads us to do something, that we are keeping ourselves faithful by keeping our spiritual fire hot and keeping the wood on the fire and keeping that, that spiritual passion going and to always be living in expectancy that Jesus could come at any time. Why? Reasons to stay faithful. Well, down here, Jesus in verse 43 basically says this, Blessed is a slave whom his master finds at work when he returns. I tell you the truth, the master will put him in charge of all his possessions. The reason to stay faithful is because in this passage and also in many others, Jesus taught that in the coming kingdom, if you've been faithful down here, I will give you even more responsibility and more to be uh, responsible for and more to rule over and more to reign over throughout eternity. That's why now does matter. That's why it's totally wrong for Christians to be satisfied with, well, I'm just glad I'm saved. I'm just glad that when, when I die, I know I'm going to heaven. I really don't care about rewards. I really don't care about investing in eternity. I don't care about crowns. I don't care. I'm just glad I'm saved. That is a response of a Christian, if they are a Christian, of someone who's never really understood the teaching of Jesus and the teaching in the New Testament, and they have no concept about spiritual growth and the incentive that God gives us for why we should be faithful to the end and keep growing. Because all of eternity and what role and responsibility God gives us throughout eternity is going to be based on our faithfulness now. And notice that the great thing about God is He always gives us way more than what is an even deal. Because Jesus said, I will put him in charge of all. In other words, as Jesus even said in another place, if you've been faithful in a little, I'll make you over many things. So the reward and the responsibility and the role that God is going to give us in his kingdom is going to be far greater than what we may be doing here. But if we're just faithful, trustworthy, reliable, dependable, that's all God's looking for. That's why every Christian can be faithful. 
Being faithful has nothing to do with what spiritual gifts or skills or abilities I have. It just has to do with being dependable and reliable. And God is looking for dependable, reliable saints today. Who are faithful to the end. Finish strong. It's not as important how we started the race as how we finish the race. God wants us to finish strong. Finally then, oh yeah, we need to get to it. Verse 49. The divide that Jesus brings. The reason this this is cool at this time of the year is because a lot of people misinterpret the verse in Luke around Christmas time where, you know... uh, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And somehow that, you know, embracing God, you know, brings us all together and, and no. <laughs> that peace on earth is only going to come when the Prince of Peace, peace is ruling. Before that, here's what Jesus says, verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is finished. Do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, there will be five in one house divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Why? Why does Jesus at this time bring division? These are the reasons. First of all, because encountering him is life-changing. When Jesus talks about bringing fire on the earth, I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit. In fact, even John the Baptist earlier on in our study of Luke said that one coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with what? Fire. And when the Holy Spirit invades a person's life, guess what? There is change. As Paul said, anyone who's in Christ truly is a new creation. Old things are going to start passing away. All things are going to start becoming new. And so when one truly has accepted Christ, there's a change in life. That's why Peter said, expect it that some of the unbelievers that you used to hang around with and do certain things with, they're not going to understand why you don't want to do the same things you used to do. Because all of a sudden, when Jesus comes into our life, things start to change and our priorities start to change and our perspective starts to change. And the things that we used to be involved with, we don't want to be anymore. We want to start centering our life on eternal things. That's why Jesus will divide. Because if he truly is changing our life and these people are going in that direction and we're going towards Christ, then obviously there's going to be division. The prophet Amos said, can two walk down the same road unless they're agreed? The answer is no. The second reason why Jesus divides is because one cannot remain neutral concerning Jesus Christ. Jesus forces us to make a decision. And if we're truly serious about Jesus, then we've got to say, well, I can't just sit the fence. I'm for Jesus. And Jesus even said earlier, just a couple weeks ago, if you're not with me, then you're against me. 
So there can be no neutrality. And that's why there's not going to be peace on earth until the whole world embraces the Prince of Peace. Finally, because he demands total allegiance. Jesus isn't about it. The whole thing about discipleship is you want to be my disciple, you got to forsake all, take up your cross, follow me. It's total allegiance. It's not like, well, you know, no. It's everything. It's all in. That's what Jesus asks for from us. And that's obviously going to come in conflict with other people who are living for themselves. There's going to be a conflict there. There's going to be division there. There's going to be a parting there. Which, by the way, that's exactly what the word division means in verse 51. Do not think that I've come to bring peace, harmony between individuals on earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. The word literally means a parting. If you and I are truly going after Jesus Christ and anyone else in our life isn't going after Jesus Christ, that means there's going to be a separation, a parting between us. And that even happens within the body of Christ. Because not every Christian in the body of Christ is going to be going after Jesus. And then... I want to get to this as we close. Jesus brings division also because of a growing lack of awareness. In verse 54, he talked to the crowds. He said, look, you can see a cloud rising in the west. You know a rainstorm is coming. You see the south wind blowing. You know there's going to be scorching heat. But you're hypocrites. Because you know how to interpret or recognize the appearance of the earth and the sky and what weather is going to come. But how can you not know how to interpret the present time? If we're walking with Jesus, there's going to be a growing awareness of of what's happening around us, what's going on in our lives, and all that. Those who aren't truly walking with Christ, there's going to be a growing lack of awareness of where they're at, what's going on, and all of that, which is going to bring division. And I love this in verse 57. He turns to the crowd and says, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? Because again, going right back and tying it in with the very beginning, part of the problem was they were people-driven. They were looking at each other for their clues, like, should we go this way or that way? He said, you have gotten to a point where you you can't judge for yourself what you should do. You have to always look at what others are doing and take your cue from them. Now again, God's not against getting godly counsel. God's not against getting godly advice. But at the end of the day, God wants us to get to a point with Him where we know as individuals what God wants us to do. And it's evident within our own hearts. Let every man be fully convinced in his own mind, Paul said in the book of Romans. And they had gotten to a point where they couldn't do anything without, what's the crowd going to do? What are they doing? Okay, I guess I'll do that. That must be right because that's what everybody else is doing. And then Jesus goes into this story about making sure that you settle an account on your way to the court before you get to the judge. I think in the context, Jesus is using this to say, hey, there's coming a day of accountability. And if you were had any awareness at all, you would make sure that you were getting your life right before God before you got to that point where it was too late. Growing awareness. 
I want to leave us with this because this is what Jesus left us with in this chapter in Luke. Because if I have a growing awareness in my life through my spiritual growth and walking with Jesus, then everything else will take care of itself. I'll, I'll be aware if hypocrisy starts to creep into my life. I'll be more aware about what real life really is. I'll be aware when I start to worry and fret and, and be anxious and troubled rather than taking things to the Lord and, and trusting in Him. I'll be aware about staying faithful and about finishing strong rather than becoming complacent. I'll be aware about what the Scriptures say. About even going so far as to going, you know what? Sometimes to follow Jesus means I have to part from other people. Because if I don't part from them, I miss out on what I could have in Jesus Christ. A growing awareness. Jesus says, I want my followers to get to a point in their life where they can judge for themselves what's right and they can interpret what's going on around them. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ministry of Jesus Christ. The one who loved people and loved us enough to confront us with the truth. Because he wanted the very and always wants the very best for us. And so often, Lord, even as Christians, we settle for what's less than your best. God, help us to learn to not only decide what's best, but to go after what's best in our life. To be able to leave everything else behind and not worry about it. And truly learn to trust you on a whole other level. As Jesus teaches us here, all we have to do is go outside of our homes and look at the flowers and look at the birds and go, okay, God takes care of them. If God can take care of them, then He can take care of me. And I need to remember that I am more valuable in His sight than they are. I'm more important to God than that flower or that bird. For I've been made in the image of God. God, help us to trust you. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for the fire that you want to bring into our lives, to stir us, to help us to truly get on fire for you like never before. God, as we look around at what's happening in the world today, I pray that all of us truly are aware of the days in which we're living and what's happening to the point where we wake up and realize we are living in the last days. God, use us like never before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here. Hope to see you Sunday.